0: We're going to jump to Genesis chapter 15, uh, where the story of the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel, begins with uh, the father of Israel himself and the father of faith himself, as we'll see tonight, Abraham. So, if you would, we're going to read this whole chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, being Abram, believed the Lord and counted it, and he, being the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, and a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us this evening. I want you to think for a second about what happens when a couple gets engaged. Right? More than just everything that happens to cause the engagement, right? Yeah. The guy proposes. uh, The girl says yes. Uh, She, as is usually the custom uh, in our In our circles, she gets a spiffy ring on her finger. But I want you to ask the question, what has changed about the relationship? What has changed? What has happened to that relationship? Why the -the over-the-top joy all of the sudden, right? Why all the intense planning that begins immediately? Uh, You can ask our own Allie Harmon about the intensity of that, right? Allie, we can't wait for you to get married, but we don't want you to leave. Where is Allie? There she is. Allie's getting married, if y'all didn't know that she's leaving us. But it's fine. We love her. Um, Why is it different? I would suggest to you it's this. That a promise has been made. That the couple has now made a promise and they are now stepping towards uh, the sealing of that promise in marriage, right? Promises change relationships. Promises transform relationships. And I think it's beautifully embodied in in the engagement why that's such an exciting time. And then even more, marriage itself, the ceremony itself, the day of the wedding itself when that promise uh, is sealed. Abraham is near uh, the top of the list of some of the biggest names in the Bible. And we're actually kind of we're dropping right into the middle of this story. God actually enters Abraham's life back in Genesis chapter 12. But there's one thing that defines the whole arc of the story of Abraham. And here we see it here vividly portrayed uh, in all the things that happen here in Genesis 15. Because what we see here in Genesis 15 and what we see through God's relationship and His interactions with Abraham is actually the stabilizing force of what it means to have relationship with this God. The stabilizing force of following and obeying this God. It's actually the foundation of the gospel and the whole system of Christianity. And it's promise. That relationship with this God is wholly founded upon His promises to His people. And that's what we see here. So vividly portrayed for us uh, in the story of Abraham. So I want to look at three things here. The basis of the promise, the response to that promise, and then the sealing of the promise. Okay? So the first thing is the basis of the promise. I want you to look. go back to verse 1 here where God comes again to Abraham and he says, Abraham, fear not. I am your shield. So this kind of clues us in since we're dropping into the middle of the story. It kind of clues us into maybe where Abraham's heart was at this moment, why God saw fit to to come to him again and to lead with, "You don't need to be afraid. I'm your shield." Uh, Genesis eleven. As when we first hear about Abraham and his genealogy and who he descended from. Genesis 12, we're given no context as to what kind of man Abraham was and what he was doing with his life at the time. But God comes into his life and says, look, I need you to. I want you to leave your home. I want you to go to a place that I will show you. And when you get there, I'm going to make your name great. And all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. That's Genesis chapter 12. But... If you read on between there and Genesis 15, you see that that has not gone so well, at least from Abraham's perspective. Just a run through of some of the things that happened in Abraham's life after that great promise was made. Well, first there was a famine, and so that causes uh, Abraham to detour through Egypt. While he's in Egypt, he gets scared for his own life, and so he tells the Pharaoh uh, that Sarah is actually his sister and not his wife. That ends her up in Pharaoh's harem, where Pharaoh is going to take her as his wife. This causes plagues on Pharaoh in Pharaoh's house. Uh, And so he finds out that Sarah is Abraham's wife. And it's kind of brilliant. He just goes to Abraham and says, Why didn't you just tell me she was your wife? Um, It's like, oh, I didn't think of that. Um, Then... He and his nephew Lot have a falling out, and so they separate. Then not long after that, Abraham actually has to gather up a little army and go and slaughter a bunch of people to rescue Lot because he was taken captive. Needless to say, through all that, Abraham is not feeling like much of a blessing to people. Not even his own wife, right? Uh, he's not feeling like a blessing. He's not feeling like there's anything uh, close to the, what God promised him being realized in his life. He's a nomad. He doesn't have a land. His own nephew doesn't even think his name is great, much less uh, all the world, right? And so Abraham finds himself in a moment of crisis, perhaps thinking to himself, Have I blown it? Did I miss it? Did I misunderstand? Have I missed out on the promise of God? Does the promise of God for my life still stand? That is probably close to where Abraham was when God comes to him again here in Genesis 15. And so that's why God leads with Abraham, fear not, I am your shield. Abraham's circumstances and his own feelings about himself and about life, they seem to contradict the promises of God in his life. His circumstances and his feelings actually now seem more real to him than the promises of God in his life. And he doesn't know what to do with it. I'm reminded of a theme um, that runs throughout the Harry Potter books, if you're familiar at all, right? Um, One of the themes that runs throughout the Harry Potter books is... Is Harry going to trust Dumbledore or not? Right? Because partly he's... when the books start, he's a young kid, and he's just wide-eyed. He, he didn't even know he had magic and all these things, right? Um, but one of the most vivid uh, illustrations of will Harry uh, trust Dumbledore is Snape, right? Snape's this professor that seems to have it out for Harry. Every single book, Snape seems to be in cahoots with the evil people. Uh, and you just, you just know that at any moment, Snape's going to turn out to be a bad guy. And, so, uh, and, he, and he treats Harry rather terribly, right? But the thing that persists throughout all the books, even after Dumbledore's death, is Dumbledore trusts me. And so Harry is continually at this crossroads, right, of do I trust my personal feelings? Do I trust what he's actually done to me? Do I trust what others tell me? Or am I going to trust Dumbledore, right? (laughs) Our lives are like Harry and Dumbledore. No. Um, But think about it. That's the best illustration I can think of. Um, It all goes back to Harry Potter at the end of the day. We're all, we are all have these crisis points. If you are a Christian, if you're someone who is at least exploring the Bible, what does it look like to follow God, to believe the kind of things that He says in the Bible? We all come to these crisis points, these crossroads, when our circumstances or our feelings or other people's feelings about us seem much more real and much more tangible and much more defining to us than God's Word and God's promises. And they even sometimes seem to contradict God's Word and God's promises. And so we're, we're constantly faced with the question, will I take God at His Word, or do I have to figure something else out, or will I trust something else? That's all of our struggle. Will I believe that God really loves me, To the degree that the Bible continually tells me that He loves me. Will I believe that God really does love me so much that He gave up His only Son, right? We read things like that, and it seems like a great thing to put a post-it note, but then we come to real situations in our lives and say, do I really believe that? Or, is what's most important in my life right now, finding a friend, or someone to date, or some group of friends that will actually show me that they love me? And actually tell me that they accept me. Or will I believe that God really loves me as much as he says he does? Will I believe that God truly is absolutely sovereign over all things? Like he promised. Like he promises. Or is my entire world going to fall apart if I don't make the grade that I thought I needed to make? Or if I don't get that internship that I had to have this summer. Or in that city that I just was dying to go to, right? What if I make the wrong choice about what job I'm supposed to take after college? Which one's more important? Do I believe that Jesus really is coming again? That he really will come again just like he promised? And when he does, he's going to restore and make right all things, Or are we all just really doomed because we elected the wrong person president? Or conversely, is it the fact that the person I wanted elected make everything okay? What am I going to believe? Will I take God at His word or will I trust something else? Up to Genesis 15, for Abraham, nothing seemed to confirm God's promises in his life. Nothing. Nothing externally, at least. But notice what God doesn't say as he begins this interaction. He doesn't say, it's okay, Abraham, I'm going to give you another chance to get this right. Doesn't say that. No. He says, Abraham, don't be afraid because I am your shield. I am your shield, and I know, therefore, that your reward will be very great. You see, in the first 11 chapters, if the first 11 chapters have made anything clear to us as we've looked through them, it is that there is no hope for sinful man outside of the gracious blessing of God Himself. And once again, God shows up and reminding them, look, I am here, that's why it's going to turn out the way that I've told you it's going to turn out what Abraham is still learning what God is going to lead him keep leading him beyond this is that the entire system the whole thing rests purely on the promise all of it and so the struggle would continue to be will you take God at his word or will you trust something else the basis of the promise is God himself and we get a hint here that Abraham begins to understand this maybe for the first time And as we move on to his response to the promise, the second thing here, his response to the promise. Abraham's response is what makes this chapter such a big deal, uh, at least as when scripture brings it back up uh, later on in the New Testament. Verse 6, we read that at the end of this, at the end of this promise and this reassurance, we're told that Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And so what we're actually being seen here in the Old Testament is early as Genesis 15. We've seen it before. But what Abraham shows us so clearly is what saving faith really is. What saving faith really is. His faith is counted to him. It's credited to him as righteousness. Meaning Abraham was justified in God's sight. It means that God is pleased with him. That God loves him. That God fully accepts him. Fully. To drive home this point, I can do no better than to bring up Paul uh, in Romans chapter 4. Listen to how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 4. He says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see what Paul is saying here. Paul is telling us that in Abraham we see what is saving faith. Is it saving faith because Abraham removed all his doubts in this moment? No, because you keep reading the story, uh, his doubts will cause him and his wife to agree to let him impregnate their servant because they get impatient with where the son is going to come from. Nope, he still has those doubts. Is it because Abraham finally steps out in obedience? No. Because that would mean Abraham did something. That would mean Abraham worked, that he was justified by his works. But the key is Romans 4, 5. The one, to the one who does not work, but believes. Again, that's a great bible word, right? Just believe. But to the one who believes, it's counted to him as righteousness. So saving faith begins when you see, when you know That you have nothing else to trust in but God. Saving faith begins when I stop trusting or looking to my abilities or my strength and I start looking at His ability and His strength. Saving faith begins when I realize it's not about me at all, it's about Him. It's not about what I need to do, but it's about what He promises to do, what He has promised to do, what He has done in Jesus, right? And Paul goes on to say in Romans 4.16, he says, "...that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring, not only to the inherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham." who is the Father of us all. That is why, Paul says, it depends on faith. Meaning, in a sense, saving faith isn't about your faith. It's not about how much you have. It's about who or what it's in. When the Bible asks, where is your faith? It's not asking, do you have any or not? The Bible assumes you have faith. The question is, what is it in? What is it resting in? Because we all have faith in something. The way to be right with this God is by faith, is to believe Him and to believe Him only. That's it. The way through is by faith. And I think if you look deep enough, if you think about this just a little bit, you'll find, if you're anything like me at least, that this really has been the hardest part of Christianity for you. Because in a sense, it seems so simple. It seems so straightforward. And in a sense, it is. But then when you start the Christian life and you try to live daily and faithfully, you wonder, am I doing it right? Do I have enough? Is there something else? What is it? The way to be right with this God is by faith. Acts 16, uh, a great example. Paul and Silas in jail. Uh, in the Philippian jail, there's an earthquake. Their chains uh, fall off. The doors swing open. The jailer wakes up, sees all the doors open, assumes all the prisoners have left. And so he proceeds to... Be- he's going to kill himself because he's- he knows he's dead if all the prisoners have escaped. And so they cry out to him and say, look, don't hurt yourself. We're still here. And he comes before them and he falls down and he says, what must I do to be saved? you remember the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved, you and your house. And we love that story. It's like, man, that's beautiful. But then when you start thinking about it, you're like... Like, sure, there's, they probably like talked about a little bit more after that, right? right? We just, we're just getting the, that first little part. And there are more. The thief on the cross, right? And Jesus is in the last moments of his life. And one of the thieves on the cross... Ask him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looks at the guy and says, I tell you surely today you will be with me in paradise. And again, we think, man, that's a comforting. That's an amazing story. But then when you really start thinking about it, you're like, is that it? Like, is it just because of the circumstances that they're dying? What? Is that it? And we wonder, how in the world can those be true? Because... As the Bible tells all of us, before you believe and as you continue in your belief, the way to be right with this God is by faith. That's it. To believe. To believe that He can do. And to believe that only He can do. That I can't be good enough. That I can't even believe enough. In fact, it has zero to do with me. And see, that's it. When you start there, when you get there, if, you'd, if you're honest with yourself, that's probably the part that you find so hard. But at the end of the day, it means it really is not going to have much to do with you because it's about Him. What has been your most common prescription to your struggles with faith? What has been your, what has been your go-to if you're anything like me, or most people, I think, maybe you've thought to yourself, man, I really need to start praying more. You do. Paul says we should pray without ceasing. Please come to me when you feel like you've gotten close to that. I'd like to know how that happened. Man, I I need to read my Bible more. Yes, you do. I've heard old, older, faithful, amazingly Jesus-loving Pastors and Christians talk about how parts of the Bible still blow them away. Parts of the Bible, they still don't fully understand. Yeah, you need to read your Bible more, but how are you ever going to read it enough? I just need to go to church more. Yeah, you do. But we all have other things going on, too, that we have to keep. can't be at church all day, every day, right? Some of you may want that, I don't know. Some of you are burned out. Uh, Or you've completely washed up and you've just, you've given up and you're ready just to kind of dump the whole faith thing. But may I be so bold as to suggest to some of you that the reason might be because you never had it. Because what did you say? You said, okay, you said to God, okay, I got this. I'm going to pray a prayer. Or I'm going to walk an aisle. Or I'm going to commit my life. Or I'm going to recommit my life. Or I'm going to dedicate my life. Or I'm going to rededicate my life. Or I'm going to be sold out. Or I'm going to be on fire. Or I'm going to make God my number one. Or I'm going to be unleashed or unchained or unhindered. Or whatever their hashtag you did on your youth conference weekend, I don't know. But if you follow the trail of those, you see what the problem with all of them is, right? They all depend on you. And the problem is, is you just went right past Christianity. Because the gospel says nothing can depend on you. And that's the good news. And you wonder... Why do I feel like such a failure? Why do I feel so exhausted? Why does the gospel just not really seem like good news to me? And what you've got to remember, what you've got to see and hear tonight, here from Genesis 15, is that Abraham believed and God counted it to him as righteousness. He believes that God would do what he said he would do and God did it. That's the story that we're being told here in Genesis 15. So his response to the promise is faith. As enigmatic or mysterious as that is to you. But what makes it real? What makes it powerful? What, what's, what else is going on? Let's end with this. The sealing of the promise. So we get to about verse 8, right? And it may be natural to ask, well, if Abraham believed, why does he then ask this question um, in verse 8? How am I to know uh, that I shall possess it? And I think he's just, ap- I think he's just simply asking, um, how are you going to do this? Like he believes it, but he wants to know, how are you going to do it? And God's answer is actually more amazing than anything, that's, than, that, than, than anything that has come to this point. And it seems weird to us, right? Because taking a bunch of animals and cutting them in half and laying them around, uh, not a very normal thing, uh, at least where most of us grew up. Um, But here it is. In that culture, this part actually didn't surprise Abraham at all. Because in that culture, uh, whenever an agreement or a contract was drawn up between two parties, this is how you did it. Uh, One of the the more specific examples, usually when this happened, is when people would get a new king. Uh, They would have this ceremony. It would be a covenant cutting ceremony and it's the king would be saying this is, this is what I pledge to you as my people and the people would say this is what we pledge to you as your subjects right and it was a promise of protection and rule from the king and then service and duty of the people and so they would literally cut this covenant and what they were saying was may I be torn in pieces may what happened to these animals happen to me if I break my end of the deal it's like <laughs> You wonder why they didn't have cars back then. Nobody wanted to sign sign a contract. Um, The setup is not what would have astonished Abraham. What would, would have astonished him and what should stand out to us is what happens. It's that God himself, the God of the universe himself, passes through the pieces. He says, Abraham, if I don't fulfill this promise, may I be torn apart. May I be forsaken. May I be cut off just like these animals. But what's even more astounding than that. I don't know why that's happening and I'm sorry. Um, What's even more astounding than that. Is that God alone passes through the pieces. God takes on himself, binds himself to both Sides of the covenant. He's saying, Abraham, I will bless you, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you, even if it means that I have to die. And here's the thing. We think about this scene and how fantastical kind of it seems to us. It happened so long ago. Things like this don't happen these days. The only thing that could have possibly been better than what Abraham saw was if what it signified really happened. And sure enough, the Bible, God's Word, God's promise given to us, tells us that's exactly what happened in Jesus. Just like darkness falls here on Abraham, centuries later, darkness comes down and covers the whole land from the sixth hour to the night that Jesus cries from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Literally, why have you cut me off? Isaiah, the prophet, hundreds of years before that, prophesied that he would be cut off from the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgressions of God's people. In Jesus, we see what God promised here, realized that God's immortality suffers mortality. He's given up, he's cut off, and he dies. You see, what God was saying to Abraham, he wasn't just saying, Abraham, I'd rather be torn to pieces, then break this covenant. He's saying, I will be. I will be. Something fascinating, you may have noticed this semester, I've quoted the author of Hebrews a lot because he brings up the Old Testament a lot. Something amazing the author of Hebrews draws our attention to in chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the author of Hebrews gives this catalog of the heroes of the faith. Uh, People like Abel and Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Samson and David and so on and so on. And after all this catalog, of all these heroes of the faith and and what they believed and how they persevered, at the end of that chapter we get this. And all of these, all these Old Testament heroes of the faith, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Wait, what? I thought God's promises were liable. Why? Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. I don't know if you ever noticed in that passage there, who for the joy set before him. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? And I totally steal uh, this illustration, but it is my favorite illustration of all time, and I love the movie as well. To help you understand, what was the joy that was set before Jesus? Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Hook. That's what we should watch tomorrow night, but it's fine. Um, I loved it when I was a kid, and I still love it. My kids don't love That's another story. My kids don't love it as much as I do. Um, Hook, movie, old movie, when I was a kid, Robin Williams plays a grown-up Peter Pan. Uh, And he's a grown-up Peter Pan, he's a lawyer, and he actually doesn't remember that he's Peter Pan. And then he's taken to Neverland because he needs to rescue uh, his son who has been kidnapped by Captain Hook. Uh, And so he spends a lot of time trying to remember that he's Peter Pan, but most of all, trying to remember how to fly. And then it comes, at the end of the movie, is the big battle as he... Uh, has learned how to fly and he flies into battle and he's going to rescue his son. But all the while, his son has now forgotten who he is. And his son has actually become to love Hook and to become a pirate himself. And so, as Pan is fighting and trying to get to his son, he's talking to him all the while. And he says to him, This I found my happy thought. It took me three days to find it. And when I did, up I went. And you want to know what it was? It was you. And in that moment, the chains of slavery and lost identity fall from the Son and He remembers who He is. What is the joy that was set before Jesus? Such a momentous joy that it made Him, it caused Him of His own will to endure the cross and despise the shame. It was you, is what the Bible tells us. And so I ask you, and I urge you to think about it, the next time you wonder to yourself, how can these things be true? How can I not screw this up? How can I realize these things in my life? I wonder if you could actually believe that the reason these things are offered, the reason these things are guaranteed, and the reason that God himself sealed it with the blood of his own son was because he loved you. <laughs> that you really are his joy. And that really was something that caused him joy. To say, you know what? I'm going to commit myself to you before you can even think about committing yourself to me. Fear not. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith, knowing that in and of ourselves, we couldn't even drum that up. But Father, You have given Yourself to us. You've given us Your Word that we might have You. You are our shield. You are even our reward. Father, some of us more than others tonight, Long for that to be a reality. Long for that to be something that we could feel. Long for that to be something that could actually change us. And again, we thank you that you've promised that it would do just that. And so would you, by the power of your spirit tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.